Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and every so often I like to get back in front of the microphone. My role is a different one on the network right now, but when a book crosses my desk that I think is particularly interesting and noteworthy, I read it and I try to talk to the author. In this case, I'm very pleased to say we have Gary Kulik on the show, and we'll be talking about his uh, wonderful and very thought-provoking book, War Stories, Fault Atrocity Tales, Swift Boaters, and Winter Soldiers, What Really Happened in Vietnam. As I said, when I first saw this book, I thought, well, this is an interesting topic. So I ordered it from the publisher and I read it and it was more than interesting. Actually, it's one of the best books I've ever read on Vietnam. It's not actually on the war itself so much, although the final chapters do analyze a particular incident. It's really about the way in which, as Gary says, the war has been framed. And we'll get into that discussion later. Gary has a lot to say about it, but you'll see that there's a lot of maybe myth-busting is too strong. Well, maybe myth-busting isn't too strong. There are a lot of things that Gary points out in the book that we believe about Vietnam, which just simply aren't true. And he has some interesting um, hypotheses, I think, proven uh, really statements about why it is the case that we still misunderstand the war in the way that we misunderstand it. So, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, I'm now uh, retired. Uh, I worked uh, for 15 years at the Smithsonian Institution and uh, for another 10 years uh, as a senior manager at uh, Winter Tour, a a museum garden and library outside of uh, Delaware. I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, graduated from St. Michael's College uh, in Vermont, uh, just came back from my 50th anniversary, and um, uh, spent a year as a VISTA volunteer, um, found that I was uh, not a very good community organizer, and uh, decided to uh, go to graduate school in American studies, and then uh, I was a um, first-year student at Brown University uh, when um, I received uh, my draft notice. And uh, the critical part of that was that uh, uh, I had uh, applied to my draft board, which was uh, in Springfield, uh, as a conscientious objector, uh, willing to serve in the military. There were two categories at that time, and uh, uh, my choice was to accept um, the reality that I would serve for two years uh, as a medic. So that's, uh, uh, and I did. I did uh, do, do my two years, 10 months of that time in, uh, in Vietnam as a, as a medic uh, and later as a, uh, a clerk. Um, and I can provide a little more detail about that. Mm-hmm. I went back to graduate school. I got my doctorate in, in uh, American, American Studies at Brown, as, as I said, and uh, worked for a time in a small museum in Rhode Island and then uh, uh, received an appointment at the, this, at the Smithsonian. Um, we, we could get into this a little bit further, but I, I think I, I went out of my way uh, to put Vietnam behind me. 
mm-hmm. for years and years. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately, uh, I found that I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, that gets us right and, into my next question, and that is, uh, if that's okay, uh, sorry to interrupt, absolutely. but well, why did you write war stories? Well, the, the the beginning of the book um, has um, a very simple history. Uh, in the last years of my job at Winter Tour, I was uh, increasingly unhappy. I was not pleased with the direction in which the institution was going, and ultimately, uh, I decided I couldn't support it and resigned. Uh, but while I was still working, my wife said to me, um, you need a project. So the project became um, a study of Vietnam War memoir. I've been collecting memoir for quite some time, and I have an extensive personal library. And so I I wanted to begin not with infantry, uh, but with the nurses. I've been in the same field in in Vietnam. My wife had a background in, in medical history. And all this began with a very close reading of a book by Linda Van Devanter called Home Before Morning, about an acclaimed book, uh, sold many, many copies. She um, uh, was widely seen as, as um, the single most important uh, writer about the nursing experience in Vietnam. And, and her, her story was... Um, uh, reprise of the, the World War One stories of innocence lost and betrayed, uh, but she added a, a third: innocence lost and betrayed, healed by therapy. So the, the book the book took off, and what I increasingly found is that it was a pastiche of um, completely unreliable anecdote uh, medical procedures that made no sense, uh, viewing of, of um, American soldiers uh, badly mutilated uh, by, by the North that, again, made no sense based on my experience where they, they were lying outside of the morgue, uh, exposed to the, to the uh, flies and vermin of Vietnam. That, that simply wouldn't have happened. So that, that became a spur to a second edge, um, and that, in many ways, is the moral center of, of my book. This this um, this moral balancing act that I attempted between the exposure of false atrocity stories, stories I knew to be wildly exaggerated and very likely false, while at the same time recognizing that uh, we committed some egregious war crimes in Vietnam. Um, The false atrocity tales were, to my knowledge, um, a novelty. No one else was writing about these things. And at a certain point, I think, I began writing with uh, an edge and an anger that uh, it wasn't simply that the stories were told, it was that they were widely believed uh, by credulous uh, journalists in prestigious newspapers uh, and magazines, the New Yorker, the New York Times. So that 
that was the spur. And uh, all of this begins to come together in 2004. John Kerry is running, and the Swift Brothers emerge. So um, I spent a substantial amount of time researching the issues that the Swift Boaters raised. And um, in the end, um, I felt very good about writing a book that would make both liberals and conservatives uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I think you've done that. <laughs> Thank you. I really do think you've done that. Um, I, I rem- we'll come. We'll come back to all these things. Let's go back to the memoir literature just for a second. Um, sure. I had not read uh, Van Deventer's book, but another book that you talk about uh, at some length um, in War Stories, which I imagine a lot of the listeners to this podcast have read, is Michael Hare's Dispatches, which which I um, I remember actually just to tell a personal anecdote when I was uh, for some reason I was sick in high school. I think I had strep or something, and. I told my mom to get me a book about Vietnam, and she brought me um, dispatches. This would have been about 78. And I couldn't make heads or tails of the book. <laughs> I, really I read about well, six pages of it, and I was like, I don't get it. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do remember the fanfare around the book and the blurbs yeah, on the book and, and, and the fact that it's yeah. now taught in classes. And it's taught as, oh, it's taught as nonfiction yeah. in classes. Right. <laughs> and, right. and so right. you have some good things to say about this, things that were really eye-opening to me as somebody that kind of came to admire the book, thinking that it was sort of nonfiction. But go ahead. If you could talk a little bit about Harris Dispatches, that I would appreciate that. Well, it's, 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 um, it's a very deceptive book. It's, it's, uh, it took him several years to write. It's, it's not dispatches from the war. He came back and, and uh, uh, mulled over this for quite some time. Um, I, I consider it a book that, that uh, dramatically blurs uh, fact and fiction. He, he made up composite characters. He didn't always tell people, didn't tell his readers that he was doing that. Uh, only the French got it right. They they uh, <laughs> yeah. published it as, yes, as, right. as fiction, and uh, so it, it's it, it's a mordant, um, uh, cynical book. Uh, the one thing that leaps out, of course, is that that her had had a great ear, and so he picked up on this the unique language of Vietnam. So anybody who was there recognizes. Uh, that uh, that that uh, her skill in, in doing that, but again, the blur fiction um, was was disturbing to me, and um, obviously is a, a motif that runs uh, through my book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I mean, you mentioned the cyn- hair cynicism because he describes the war as sort of a disaster, but the GIs right. in it as being. And this is oddly incongruous, given the fact that he thinks the war is a disaster, but the GIs in it are always very eager to help him do everything. Yes. They love him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like, well, well, I, I think this, <laughs> yeah, this, this was, uh, who, who wouldn't want to be noticed by a journalist? Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, sure, that's, that's, that's definitely going to happen. And, and you do point out another thing about the book, is that there are lots of points in it that, at, 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 and I, I suppose that, for somebody with a better, as you put it, li- well, Mike, a literary ear or a literary sensibility than mine, this is uh, clever and interesting. But some of the book doesn't make any sense at all. Like, for That's example, right. you you, right. you you mentioned this expression he uses: "war on a cracker jack box." 
exactly. What I does that mean that. exactly? I don't. I don't think well, anybody I, knows what that means. I, I had, and I think I say, uh, you know, several readings of, of this passage uh, never yield a, a, a clear meaning. Um, you know, he's got another passage where um, uh, where he basically asks how many. At what point does running in front of a machine gun become an act of cowardice? Well, this is bizarre. Um, I think soldiers and Marines understood that there were men who took needless risks, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't cowardice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's it's this combination of a kind of postmodern cleverness, this, this distancing from the actual experience, the blurring of truth and fiction, the creation of composite characters. The, uh, I, I, I found it. Uh, I, I found it, uh, it necessary to, to uh, write about it with uh, with a certain edge and uh, a deep skepticism. Yeah, because I mean, if you if you read the reviews, which I, and I did go back and read some of the reviews because computers are great that way. You can go back and read the reviews. Right. Some of the things that were said about the book are positively embarrassing today. In the, sen- in the sense of just being yeah. so over the top in terms of praise. <laughs> well, that awful quote from, from John Le Carre, uh, the best book I've ever read about uh, men in war. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 Well, no, no, no. So, um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about – I don't believe there is an insane Vietnam vet in dispatches. There are some people that don't act quite normal. I guess I'd put it that way, but – can you trace for us at all the history of the notion of the damaged Vietnam vet? When does it appear, and, and does it appear in the memoir literature first, or is it in film, or where does it come from? I think that um, it's I, I located in um, what was first referred to as Vietnam syndrome, and later morphed into PTSD, and uh, it. It's very much the work of a group of, of um, uh, activists, anti-war um, psychiatrists, Robert J. Lifton, yes, most prominent among them. And uh, you, you'll note in the book that um, the earlier, the earliest um, statements that Lifton made in public, and this is well before the, the book he wrote, which came out of therapy sessions with uh, veterans, all of whom were members of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. So he's, he's interviewing a, a small subset, a tiny subset of Vietnam veterans. But even before he does that, he's talking uh, before Congress, and I, I, I don't have the quotes in front of me, but he's, he's deeply worried that something terrible has happened to the souls of veterans, and that we will soon see this acted out in the streets of America. And then, of course, we get Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. And Travis Bickle. Was <laughs> Travis Bickle. A host yeah. of other uh, films. And, and this, this trope uh, continues to structure the way in which young journalists Present war. That war is somehow soul destroying by its very nature. Uh, that everybody uh, who goes to war is damaged in some sense, uh, and that uh, among 
evidence of this this damage is is uh, is, is also uh, murderous activity, suicidal activity, um, and that trope gets fastened on very very soon. And as 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 someone who follows how people are now writing about our current veterans, that that trope has has persisted and and uh, remains um, the dominant way we think about veterans. Something happened to them, and uh, we need to be wary. We need to be uh, we we need to pity them. We we need to find ways to support them. Increasingly now from uh, uh, the veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, that wasn't. That wasn't the case when Lifton was, was presenting an image of this very dangerous, uh, asocial uh, Vietnam vet whose soul, whose soul had been had been effectively destroyed by, mm-hmm. by going to war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, this was linked to an utterly false notion. It was something um, truly, uh, Truly really awful about the war in Vietnam, different from previous wars, that um, somehow more damaging, um, and yet a, a, an instant of reflection should have realized, mm-hmm. people should have realized that uh, casualty rates in World War II were dramatically, dramatically higher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually, Lifton is an interesting character, and, and, and after reading your book, I went back and read some of the things, again, computers are wonderful this way, um, yes, and yes. read some of the things that Lifton had written in the New York Times and other places like this, and about the notion of the atrocity-producing situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry to laugh, but... Um, no, no, it's, yeah. <laughs> and, and, that, and that, you know, Jane Fonda would repeat that uh, uh, later on, it's... it's um, uh, Situations produce atrocities. Yeah, yeah, not people, not people. But, but yeah, not people. Yes, and so then it comes down. I mean, then and this shifts moral authority for the war, whether it was a disaster or not, away from the people that actually committed the atrocities, if they committed them, to some other nebulous system, right? Yes. No. In, in fact, the, the the whole premise of the Winter Soldier investigation, uh, which was uh, uh, no. no very few people even heard about it until John Kerry ran for president, and, mm-hmm. and his, his uh, he had a cameo appearance in the film, and all of a sudden that that film gets much wider release. And um, the premise was that uh, individuals aren't aren't to be held accountable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it was premised that. Uh, made the investigation much less effective. People weren't willing to name names, to give dates. Mm-hmm. The focus was entirely on uh, the guilt of uh, the Army as a whole, mm-hmm. the American people as well, but not on individuals. Yeah, that does seem to be exactly right. So, I mean, again, I, I think we need to get this out on the table. I, I, I think studies have been done now of Vietnam veterans and how they fared mm-hmm. in life, and they fared pretty well. I can yeah. I, have, I have an example of one. And I understand that anecdote, the plural of anecdote is not data, but my uncle came back, mm-hmm. served for a while, retired as a colonel, and then became a very successful insurance salesman. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. Yeah. yeah. An avid skier. Yeah, this, this is true for many draftees as well. Um, I think that 
again, we've we've got this uh, over time a number of uh, restudies of the initial uh, the initial studies of, of PTSD, which came out in the, the mid to late eighties. Um, uh, began by suggesting that almost half of us uh, would suffer from uh, PTSD in, in, uh, in our lifetime. And those studies have been repeated now on two different occasions, and the numbers have been dramatically, dramatically lowered. And a very prominent um, psychiatrist who teaches at Harvard named Richard McNally wrote a book called mm -hmm. Trauma, which is a very important to, to, uh, to my analysis. Um, this, this was simply a letter he wrote. No, no one's going to see this. A letter, a footnote into the uh, AMA's journal saying, you know, if in fact we're talking about day-to-day -day dysfunction, the numbers are now down in the single digits for Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. And as, as you indicated, there's... there's uh, Lots of us have, have moved on. That um, you know, I, I think, given the trope that uh, that now afflicts all veterans, uh, I sometimes think the best answer is that uh, in the vast majority of instances, war uh, neither uh, builds character nor destroys it. What war does is reveal it. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about a related issue. Um, part of the evidence that is given uh, for the fact that uh, uh, Vietnam somehow damaged soldiers is that, uh, and, and let me put it in the starkest possible terms, that the rate at which GIs committed atrocities was higher in Vietnam than in other wars. And I'm not talking about the kinds of atrocities which one might include, for example, in... What was his name? Nick uh, Turton, is that his Turst. name? Yeah, Turst. Yeah, name. He, he includes um, b bombing campaigns as atrocities, but let's right. exclude those right. for a second. Let's talk about melee type atrocities, that is where soldiers right. actually shoot people. That there was somewhat higher in Vietnam. Um, is, uh, you talk a little bit about this. Uh, well, what, what is your opinion on that? Well, there's no way to know that. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no empirical evidence that would allow uh, anyone to say with authority uh, that um, the incidence of war crimes was uh, on the American side was greater in Vietnam than in any uh, previous war. I just don't know how you would uh, quantify that. One of the things that's, well, two things I, I, I want to say about that. Um, uh, I co-authored a piece uh, with... Uh, uh, Berkeley scholar of, of Vietnamese history named Peter Zinnemann. A uh, long piece, 40-some pages, in a journal called Cross Currents, East Asian History and Culture Journal. Uh, and those 40 pages were devoted to attacking literatures. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud to have uh, co-authored that. I'm proud to have uh, revealed him to be uh, an incredibly um, sloppy tendentious scholar. Uh, and um, and I've forgotten the second thing I wanted to say about that. Well, we can say about uh, Terse's book, which is called uh, is it, I'm sorry, I'm blanked on it too. Kill Anything That Moves, is that right? 
kill anything that moves. Yes, kill anything that moves. Um, got a huge amount of press, and oh, yeah. almost yeah. all of it favorable. Um, a lot of it was favorable, uh, and and it's been uh, it's been translated uh, into Vietnamese uh, with the. Uh, uh, there's one paragraph in the English version which uh, lists uh, known or suspected atrocities by uh, the North or by the Viet Cong. And uh, when when it was translated in Vietnam, uh, uh, that paragraph was deleted. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no evidence that Terse ever protested that. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the thesis of this book is again a sort of Lifton's thesis of the atrocity-producing situation, and that is the way in which yeah. the United States prosecuted the war in Vietnam was such that it put GIs in situations where they were more or less compelled to commit atrocities um, very often. Let's just put it that way. I don't know how you quantify right. that, but right. that's the right. thesis of the book, and it's a long mm-hmm. book. Um, where does he get the? I mean, you say that there's no evidence of this, but just to play devil's advocate for a second, what does he talk about then? Well, and we, we know we know the most egregious atrocities. Certainly, Mi Lai was was there. Um, uh, more recently, uh, two journalists from the Toledo Blade uh, revealed a long-running series of war crimes uh, committed by a recon unit called Tiger Force. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, uh, these are, the Tiger Force book was persuasive to me. Um, we also know that there's a um, uh, there is a list of, of um, war crimes that. Is uh, suspected and some real. Uh, that is now in the archives at the University of Michigan. So he he made um, he made some use of that. He also made use of, of, of a series of, of sources, some of which are reliable, some of which are notoriously unreliable. Uh, I talk about uh, uh, extensively a, a veteran, a Marine veteran named Scott Camille. Buried in, in Terse's footnotes is is a uh, is a piece that uh, uh, takes at face value uh, Camille's stories, which I went to great length to uh, to cast doubt on, uh, even interviewing men who served with him. He's just not a reliable uh, analyst of, of American war crimes. So um, there's no question that, that we committed war crimes. So. Terse has that right. Mm-hmm. There's also no question that we attempted to fight uh, a war of insurgency uh, with extraordinary firepower. And uh, inevitably, uh, that produced far more civilian death than it should have. You know, we were fighting um, a war of insurgency uh, as if it were World War II. widely known by, by people who serve that uh, rather than employ traditional infantry tactics faced with a sniper, uh, fire and maneuver, uh, it was much, much easier to call in artillery or gunships. So we did. Mm-hmm. We did. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, um, you know, Terce has a piece of the story right. And that, that's a powerful part of the story, but the overall story, I think he gets egregiously wrong. And the other piece, I've just now remembered this, um, uh, as, as we know, as, as we get deeper into uh, World War II, for example, and I'm thinking now of, of Rick Atkinson's mm-hmm. trilogy he did on the war in Europe, 
you know, we're getting evidence in North Africa of, uh, of soldiers uh, shooting you know, Berber tribesmen for, for sport. Um, uh, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the French colonial troops raped their way up the Italian peninsula, uh, and they were under our command. We look the other way. So um, we're beginning to move away from that greatest generation mythos and taking um, a harder look at uh, at what happened in Europe and the Pacific. Uh, you know, again, uh, it shouldn't be surprising that um, in moments of stress, uh, men can lose their moral bearing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I can say that as somebody that studied the Milai massacre extensively, um, there have been a number of documentaries about it where they've gone back and they've interviewed people who were there. Um, yes. we, we know they were there. And they make claims which are absolutely impossible. Um, and and I, know, I know this for a fact because I've read this sort of eyewitness testimony that was taken mm-hmm. at the time, you know, like we cut people's heads off and we cut their tongues off and we danced around with their severed limbs and, you know, we burnt them to death and this other sort of stuff. Which definitely yeah. didn't happen. There's, there's no question right. it didn't happen. Um, but the interviewers never questioned it at all. That's right. And, and I just found it kind of rather shocking. And there's, there's one bit of testimony that I remember, particularly from a recent, I think it was a frontline documentary that was made several years ago. They talked to a fellow who did seem disturbed, um, and he described uh, decapitating and cutting the tongues out of the mouths of Vietnamese uh, mm-hmm. civilians and things. This stuff did not happen. Um, there's no question it didn't happen. But there was no effort to question. It was as if what he had to say was sort of beyond questioning. Yes. No, I, I think I, I think now of the Wallace Terry book, Bloods, um, uh, there are five stories, five veterans interviewed for that for that book that make, um, uh, make outrageous claims, uh, very similar to the ones that, that, that you've seen. And uh, once again, Reviewers were credulous in mm-hmm. accepting these claims with, without thinking that, uh, wait a minute, how, how can I, uh, you know, can we get some evidence for this? Uh, for years and years, uh, and it may still be true that uh, veterans would come back and say, uh, I was up in a helicopter, we threw it, mm-hmm. we trying to interrogate them. And I think I put an end. I hope I put an end to, to, to those to those stories. Um, I'm mentioning first that uh, none of these stories had ever been corroborated. And at a minimum, you would think journalistic ethics would require you to do that. And uh, the reality, of course, is, is for anyone who's ever flown in a helicopter, you 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 can barely hear the person sitting next to you. Mm-hmm. Because of the noise of the rotor overhead, the uh, uh, army helicopters flew with both doors open. This is uh, you know, the idea that this is a place for an interrogation is utter nonsense. So, but that uh, uh, that story will probably linger uh, longer than my my uh, my efforts to refute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doubtless. So I want to go on uh, past that story to another story, okay. which you deal with, and that is spitting. But before that. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about the Winter Soldiers investigation and its history and the way it has been, um, I guess, accepted 
by, uh, I want to call it popular mythology? Um, well, I think uh, the investigation itself was, was partially funded by, by Jane Fonda, and it uh, took place in Detroit, um, 1971, and it received almost no uh, publicity at the time. Uh, people would later claim that, that obviously the networks were never going to air shows like this, but um, when we're talking about uh, uh, hideous scenes of uh, sexual torture, um, uh, that's probably a more powerful reason why Winter Soldier wasn't aired. It became a film as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Barbara Koppel, well-known uh, documentarian, um, uh, and others did the film dies. We don't hear anything about it until 2004. And uh, Carrie makes a brief cameo appearance. Um, the Swift Boaters seize on this, and uh, the film uh, becomes very prominent once again. Um, well, it's on, it's on Netflix. <laughs> it is literally on Netflix. Yes, is, is right? uh, yes, it was right. on Netflix. I watched well, it. Well, <laughs> I, I, uh, it, it also um, in in the uh, uh, you know they they uh, uh, a company uh, an another company brought 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 the film out of mothballs and and, uh, and and began showing it around the country in, in the fall of two thousand four, mostly in places that. Uh, were likely to be uh, liberal Princeton, Minneapolis. Um, I forget where else. So I, I read. I went. Uh, I wanted to read the reviews. Most many of them coming out in alternative papers. Uh, and uh, one egregiously awful review in, in the Washington Post uh, by a film critic who still writes for the Post. Um, and, and so you had this this extraordinary moment where. Um, Swift voters were saying, all these guys are frauds, none of this happened. And uh, left liberal reviewers are talking about it as the unvarnished truth, despite a generation of work suggesting that all documentaries are uh, often blur the line between uh, film and fiction, fact and fiction. So both of these positions can't be right, and in fact, they were both wrong. I think I, I, mm -hmm. I, I simply wrote that you know this, this is we, we need to look at this without this this uh, ridiculous uh, Manichaean uh, dichotomy: truth or, or false and, mm -hmm. and falsehood. And, and, you know what I discovered uh, should have been available to others. The army took every single one of these allegations with great seriousness mm -hmm. and interviewed. They went and interviewed, uh, and I believe the Navy did the same thing for the Marines who were testifying. And I don't have the number right in front of me. I read about it in the book, but a considerable number of these men just backed away. Mm -hmm. uh, now they may have been intimidated. I'm not. I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, but the wild, many of the wild assertions, and, and, and the wildest assertions, some of them you, you have mentioned, came in the first morning of, of, uh, of that testimony with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and that was Scott Camille, and another uh, fabulous, and Joe Bangard. 
seem to be competing. This was a comment made to me years later by uh, a psychiatrist who was also on that panel. They seem to be competing with each other to tell the most gruesome, sexually tinged atrocity mm -hmm. stories. And as I said before, earlier, I paid close attention to Mr. Camille and interviewed people who served with him, and uh, I, uh, I find it completely unreliable. So uh, let, let me, uh, while we're talking about um, the Swift Boat veterans, here's the part that probably would make um, conservatives, or at least opponents of John Kerry, a little bit uncomfortable. You, yeah. you, uh, you um, don't like a lot of what the Swift Boat veterans have to say about John Kerry's record. Well, I think I think not not only that I I think I demonstrated that uh, uh, some of it can't possibly be true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you had this egregious incident where where um, uh, uh, Kerry is awarded a Bronze Star for Valor, which is not an especially high award for Valor, uh, uh, on a mission um, in which. Uh, one of his fellow Swift Boat commanders comes on a major television show in the middle of the election and, and says no one was fired. He, he couldn't have been, you know, it was, you can't have an active ballot if no one is, is firing at you. There was no action that day. It's a guy named Thurlow. And it turns out that uh, Thurlow was himself awarded a Bronze Star for Valor. <laughs> <laughs> and the citation clearly indicates they were under fire. Yeah. So you, you, this is, this is uh, um, you know, how many incidents like this do you need before, um, uh, it didn't take me long to agree with John McCain, who immediately uh, came to Kerry's defense, uh -huh. thinking that uh, the attacks on his, on his service, on his medals, was dishonest. And yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting perspective. I mean, I, do, I, do, I, um, I don't know if the Swift boaters got the upper hand in that. Uh, I think maybe in the American mind they might have, but I, I remember well, thinking myself that uh, people with those, I, it just didn't make sense. Well, you could. Uh, I, I think they were decisive in the election. Um, I think what has happened now, and I think I use this term. Not going to be able to quote myself, but if you look up Swift Boating on Wikipedia, I believe there's a quote from me saying that this has become a synonym um, for. Uh, uh, and I, I, again, I'm, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but a, a, a synonym for, for you know, dishonest attacks. Oh, good. Well, that's, that's so swift boating has, has come down to us. That's as, good. As, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, in a, in a, in a, as met, metaphor for this. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, so then let's go on um, from John Kerry's record and the swift boaters to an, another uh, tale that you hear a lot about Vietnam, yeah. in addition to people being thrown out of helicopters and this kind of thing. Um, and that is uh, veterans returning uh, often to San Francisco <laughs> and being spat upon. Right. Seems like right. San Francisco right. is where it happens. So, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Well, I think um, um, I spent some time um, analyzing the stories. There's there's a uh, there's a book, and I'm blanking on the title now. Uh, once prominent uh, Chicago Trib journalist. Uh, I'll, I'll find it in a minute here. But anyway, uh, uh, he's still writing, and um, 
he collected a, a, a vast number of these stories. Um, I read uh, the piece he did in the in the uh, Chicago Tribune, and I closely read the book. And and what you what you quickly find is that um, these are formulaic stories, uh, and the principal formula involves a solitary female spitter, usually a hippie, uh, approaching a, uh, a soldier or marine in the airport San Francisco, uh, L.A., Seattle, uh, and spitting, spitting uh, on that soldier. And the soldier's reaction typically is not anger or, or um, uh not any uh, desire to retaliate again in the in the majority of instances, but just you know how how could this how could this happen? Um, the journalist I'm thinking of his last name is Green, and uh, so these are formulaic stories uh, that uh, single out um, uh, a hippie hippie female as the uh, as the protagonist. Um, they surface only years later. There are there are some it's a very small number of contemporaneous I was spit upon stories. So these are years after the fact. They, we, they begin to surface. And as I read the Green stories, um, uh, if you tell me something that uh, I know is improbable, um, then I'm probably not going to believe your story. And there are just too many improbables in these stories. But the largest issue for me was there, there's, there's nobody who says, I, I wasn't spit upon, but my buddy was. I saw it happen. <laughs> there's no corroboration. When I returned from Vietnam, I came through uh, Seattle-Tacoma. I was surrounded by other veterans. You know, mm-hmm. this this was uh, you know a factory process. We're we're on our way home. We're we're uh, uh, so the idea of a solitary veteran walking through a cavernous airport on on his own uh, and spit upon by by a, uh, a female hippie just struck me as. Given everything I, I knew, given the, the length of time it took to begin telling these stories, uh, suggested to me that this this, became, this was a metaphor uh, for how a lot of veterans felt, mm-hmm. uh, uh, how they felt they were being received uh, by by their fellow citizens. So. Uh, this kind of, of uh, whether it's a false memory or, or just, just the story I, I need to tell. And of course, the, the fundamental reality here is that we don't get these stories in proliferation until the Rambo movie. And Rambo uh, has a rant uh, at the end of that first, the first Rambo movie, where he talks about being spit upon. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think the movie had a trem- tremendous impact on uh, transferring the notion that our that many of 
our fellow citizens thought we were dupes or criminals. Or, or we could have uh, tell a story where uh, I was talking about my conscientious objector status and, and uh, somebody said, in effect, that, uh, well, you know, there were easier ways to beat the draft than that. And of course there were. I knew mm-hmm. that. that was the point. Of, uh, but that, that kind of disrespect, uh, which lots of veterans felt. I mean, no one, when, when I came home, no one wanted to hear about whatever good we were doing. No one wanted to hear stories of heroism, certainly. No one wanted to hear any stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that. that uh, so the, the, the spitting becomes this, uh, this way of expressing how, how the country greeted us. But I think in the vast majority, and I'm not saying, you, you can't prove a negative. Some, somewhere somebody spit upon a soldier, a Marine. Uh, but the proliferation of these stories uh, simply struck me as as, uh, as well. You conclude the book uh, with a bit of a departure. You investigate yes. an atrocity story. And I think That's it's told right. by, I'm trying to remember this, uh, uh, Terry Whitmore, is that right? Terry Whitmore. Yes, uh, Terry Whitmore yeah. plays, plays a principal role in this and it occurs in Quang okay. Tree Province. Is that right? That's right, October 1967. And uh, uh, unlike... Uh, many other uh, false atrocity stories. Whitmore identifies the company, identifies the date, um, the time, roughly the time. So... Yeah, tell us a little bit about about Whitmore and and how he came to tell the story and then it's sort of unraveling. Sure. Whitmore is is a deserter. Um, He is... uh, He ends up in a hospital uh, in Japan. He'd been wounded, I believe, at Kantian. While serving uh, Bravo Company, First Battalion, First Marines, and he gets a Japanese girlfriend. The girlfriend is on the left, and and uh, she uh, helps him uh, uh, desert. So he ends up going through Moscow. He ends up living. He will live his life mostly in in Sweden. Um, Mark Lane, uh, who wrote a notoriously bad book uh, called Conversations with America. Uh, runs into him in Stockholm and gets him to tell the story. Uh, Whitmore would later uh, produce a book, Simon & Schuster, I believe, was the publisher. Uh, And uh, it would be reprinted some years later by the University of Mississippi Press to to positive blurbs. Um, The story that there's, there's sufficient discrepancy between uh, the oral interview in Mark Lane and then Whitmore's own book to bring some skepticism to this, but uh, didn't seem to dissuade uh, people who wanted to republish it or people who thought it was uh, reliable. I, I thought the story made no sense. 300 people killed. It was on, you know, we're talking about uh, a company of Marines committing an atrocity on the scale of so I want to get to the bottom of it, and uh, getting to the bottom of it required uh, some patience, some, some emailing of Bravo Company. One uh, uh, one had uh, a website, so I'm on the website asking these questions, rousing suspicion. <laughs> Ultimately, um, I um, I get the name of company commander and a lance corporal who were court. 
mushrooms. Uh, and then I'm able to uh, call up Washington and get a copy of what's known as the Article 39 investigations, hundreds of pages of testimony. These hundreds of pages of testimony, uh, because you're referring to the same incident as Whitmore, uh, are the conclusive refutation of Whitmore's claims, period. There's nothing like this happens. The Marines recognize that uh, one uh, young Lance Corporal uh, took uh, a woman out from her uh, hot uh, bunker reel uh, and shot her in the back, uh, likely in front of her children. The killing of a prisoner uh, is murder and has been in uh, the American military since the middle of the 19th century. And uh, he would, they never found the body. So he was charged with uh, attempted murder instead. And those last two chapters of the book are both the refutation of Whitmore's grand, grotesque story and uh, an ex ex explication of, of um, to the best of my ability of, of what happened that, that morning in, in Quangtree. Mm -hmm. And what, what did Whitmore say had happened, and why did he say it? Well, why did he say it is, is uh, only he would know, and he, he died fairly young. I mean, he reconciled uh, with his family. He was able to come back to the United States under Carter's uh, uh, amnesty. Um, uh, but you are, you know, the suspicion here is you've got a deserter justifying his, uh, mm -hmm. his actions. That, uh, and uh, he actually makes a final appearance in the uh, anti-war film, Sir, No, Sir. And he's, he's uh, basically saying the government the government forced him into this situation. He didn't, in, in this final, he, he, he comes across looking very unhealthy. I assume he would die a few months or years after that film. He has no longer anything to say about this massacre that, that uh, he participated in. Um, but it's clear that the blame goes all to the government. So it, it seems to me, um, here's a young man trying to defend himself. Mark Lane wants atrocity stories, finds them in, in Sweden. And uh, the temptation to tell these false stories um, uh, as self-justification is, I'm, I'm assuming, would, would be great. And mm -hmm. I wanted to comment on this because I'm often asked, uh, well, why, why would people lie? Um, and it turns out there's a there's an incredible piece of journalism in the current New Yorker by a woman named Rachel Avi Avi. The title of the piece is "Remembering the Murder You Didn't Commit," and it's it's this complicated explication of a series of false confessions that led people to serve time mm -hmm. uh, unjustified. And it turns out that uh, DNA evidence is, is now exonerated uh, uh, close to 100 people over the last few years, all of whom confessed. 
if there's sort of particularly awful murder, sexually tinged murder in a big city, the police fully understand they're going to get phone calls from people who simply want to be uh, the center of attention for it. They're, they're going to get false confessions. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason they don't reveal all the details. So it's, it's a much more common phenomenon than you would think. Mm-hmm. And I think about, think about this as, as, again, there were a small number of people on the far left who wanted Mark Lane, most notoriously, wanted these stories. And Winter Soldier Investigation was, was designed to, to bring these stories to the fore. Mm-hmm. So again, these are, these are people now in the headlights. And um, if they're slight, slightest bit unhinged, uh, slightest bit guilty, uh, you can quickly see where the exaggerations come from. Mm-hmm. So is there any hope that uh, the framing of the war that took place in its closing years and continued in the 1970s, and I guess continues to this day if we look at the reception mm-hmm. of Nick Church's book. Right. Uh, right. Is, is there any hope that, that will change yeah. and we'll come to see Vietnam as what it was? <laughs> In a new light. Yeah. I, there, is, there is hope, but I, I have to begin by saying that the debate on the war among American historians, historians of the United States, is locked in place. It's the same debate as, as the debate on the war itself. So um, uh, all of the positions of the anti war movement um, that, for example, to offer just one, uh, that Ho Chi Minh and his, and his uh, minions were really nationalist and, and mm-hmm. communist secondarily, um, have been codified into what's known as the orthodox school of, of uh, uh, American historians writing about Vietnam. Uh, the opposition uh, comes from people like Mark Moyer and, and uh, Sorley, and they're basically arguing, we could have won. So here is is the '60s all over again. This debate has not Mm -hmm. advanced. Now, Mm -hmm. what's what's hopeful to me is that there's a new generation, a younger generation of scholars who have two great advantages. Uh, They were too young to be caught up in the emotion of the war, but their principal advantage is that they read Vietnamese, Mm -hmm. and so we're getting a series of books uh, uh, coming out from these younger scholars, Peter Zinneman among them, um, uh, my co-author of that uh, piece, Attacking Church, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Gear Asseline, uh, uh, Ed Miller, uh, Ian Hong Nguyen, and the list could go on. That uh, people with access to Vietnamese officials with the ability to, to, to uh, get access to some records, it's going to be the, the Vietnamese Vietnamese are not going to reveal what's in their archives. But we're now getting a much more complicated view of, uh, of the North, and it's, it's a, a long time in coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's my hope, that, uh, that we begin to see the war uh, uh, from the Vietnamese sides in, in, in a far more sophisticated way than, than we have. Having said that, it's you know the the um, let me be clear about my moral position. I um, 
I, I believe that the United States had every right and every duty uh, to support the South Vietnamese. Uh, but we did it all wrong. And we had no business taking over the war, sending ground troops into Vietnam. Uh, having said that, um, I still think there's, there's room to... My hope is that these, these younger scholars who read Vietnamese will, will help to reframe mm -hmm. um, what the war was about, mm -hmm. rather than going back to the, to the, uh, uh, to the highly emotional uh, aversion that, that now plays out in scholarship. Uh, the anti-war movement was, was right on all its points uh, versus, well, we really could have won the war. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Actually, I lurk on a um, Vietnam War listserv where these things are talked about all the time. Uh, <laughs> and, and yes, what, is, the, what is the listserv? Uh, you know, I can't remember the name of it right now. It's, um, you know, I just can't remember the name of it. It's run from the University of Buffalo. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I don't remember the name of it. I really don't. I know it's one of the Buffalo listservs, one of the ones that's run. Oh, okay. That's, that's, uh, that's the listserv that I'm on. As well, VBA. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I and I and I lurk there. I don't ever say anything, but I know that, that <laughs> I know that the Vietnam War is being refought there practically every day. Um, so that's very interesting. I, I wonder. It's, it's an interest. It's an interesting site. And and uh, if there are veterans listening, I'd, I'd encourage them. To. Oh yeah, no, it is. It's terribly interesting. I don't feel like I have the standing to say anything because you you you. There are people there who really know what they're talking about because they were there. Right. And that's right. the part that I find absolutely fascinating. I should also like to put a plug in for. Um, I believe it's Texas Tech has a yeah. huge archive of yeah. interviews yeah. with veterans, and I've listened to yeah. many, many of them, and it's an absolutely fantastic resource. Yeah, no, I've I've been to Texas Tech twice. I've I've spoken at at, uh, at their conferences. Uh, I've done research there. Uh, what what they've done is, is it is remarkable. Short it, it is, and they've uh, they really deserve credit for sort of saving the legacy of the war on all this material and data and these other things that they have a kind of virtual archive which is accessible yes. to everyone. Yeah. It's it's a remarkable resource, and I hope whoever oh, I, I I completely agree. Whoever I, does I, the funding for these things, give those people more money, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would appreciate that. Yeah, I'll make they, sure they know they, that. they're doing absolutely fantastic work. And I know that when I was doing the first research on the book that I'm writing now, I, I listened to thousands of hours of those. Interviews, uh, and they're just wonderfully conducted by really dedicated people that know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. and they, you know, they let the veterans speak, which is really great, I think. So yes, that's a, yes. plug, a plug for them. And I want to give one more plug for your book, and I want to do it in an odd way. I want to make sure that people read it and not think that it's a really partisan book because it's not. And so I'm just a series of, of statements. So you're not saying that, uh, for example, there weren't any atrocities in Vietnam. You're saying there were. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. And you're not saying there's no such thing as PTSD because there is, right? No, there is. That's right, correct. right. And you're not saying that everything that was said at the Winter Soldier investigation is bullshit because some of it wasn't. That's correct. Right. Yeah, That's exactly. Correct. And that much of what you can find in the memoir literature is completely valid. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. Valid in terms of that, that person's, that person's experience. experience. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, sure. I, I just think it's important for people to know that the book is, is it's, it's not exactly uh, – it's definitely not a polemic for or against the war or for or against the anti-war movement or for or against the people that fought there. 
it's a kind of That's excellent right. assessment of the way in which it has been framed and the way in which people in which people who both were in the anti-war movement and who went and who weren't and were just engaged citizens have elected to talk about it. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And that, that was what was really eye-opening to me. I, di- I didn't realize that Travis Bickle had that kind of lineage. <laughs> Going back to taxi driver. So it was very we're, eye-opening we're still, for me. We're still dealing with that. Yeah, if, if I understand. You, you read what's coming out of Iraq these days. And, yeah. And, uh, yes. it's, it's funny because also to say something about Netflix for just a moment, they uh, for some reason they're releasing um, uh, Army war films that were made. They're, they're films about uh, soldiers coming home. After World uh-huh. War II, uh-huh. and and one of them, um, I, I don't remember the name, but I wish I wish I did. But one of them is about soldiers who came back from World War II, uh, basically with psychological energy, uh, injuries. Mm-hmm. And sure. you know, they begin with statistics that basically says twenty percent of the people we deal with have severe psychological problems. Twenty percent. This is World so that, War. This is was, the World War II. That was. And that was contemporary. Yeah, they made this film, and they show them treating these films. And actually, the treatments are kind of funny because they're a little bit Freudian and they're kind of crazy. And um, but but the the point is is that obviously the Department of the Army or the Army at the Pentagon at that time was very concerned with this. I mean, Mm -hmm. this film was suppressed, by the way. It was not released to the public, right? Because they didn't want to say that twenty percent of these casualties were what you know what essentially they would have called at the time shell shock, or I think they called it battle fatigue. Is that right? Battle fatigue was was the was the term, and and the the percentage of of um, uh, men um, uh, who suffered from battle fatigue, particularly. we know, we know a reasonable amount about this, and I, I write some about it on, on the in the European theater. This was very high. Yeah. Um, uh, there's there's a the late uh, uh, writer Paul Fussell, uh Yeah, in his book Wartime. His book Wartime. Yeah. Um, uh, out of his experience, basically, basically said, "Look, uh, you serve." The length of time that I did, and he was—he was a, a platoon leader in, in a, a company that was in that was in substantial combat. One of one of um, one of three things is going to happen: uh, you're going to die, you're going to be wounded. Uh, hopefully, it's the million-dollar wound that sends you home, or uh, you're going to break. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to be able yeah. to yeah. take it yeah. anymore. Well, I have to say, seeing this, seeing this on Netflix, I, I'm amazed that the Army re- released it even to this day, but it was suppressed originally right. after they made it. They made a bunch of films about reintegration, basically, because they had millions of people to deal with. And, you know, they wanted to get the word out about that all these GIs coming home, and here's what they faced, and this is what it's going to be like, and we're going to retrain them. And all, most of them were very upbeat. And this one is certainly upbeat, too, I have to say. But it does open with a statistic that says something like 20% of the casualties that they deal with at Walter Reed or wherever it was are right. essentially psychological trauma. And yeah. uh, and yeah. they show these guys, and you can tell that some of them are not, you know, I mean, they, they definitely have some sort of neurological damage. Um, but the Army took well, it very seriously, you know. I mean, yeah. they, they and, knew. And I think, I think they, um, uh, you know, they were, certainly the Army Medical Department was very, was very serious about this. And, and uh, you know, the context for this is the casualty rates in the European Union. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it was, uh, the 4th Infantry Division uh Division I served with in Vietnam suffered 252 percent casualties mm-hmm. over 10 months. Right. So that means they were, and, and that's the division as a whole. 
So that includes support troops and frontline troops. So the casualty rate of, of maneuver battalions, the infantry, most likely was far higher. Mm-hmm. So you're replacing infantry companies every two months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with that kind of carnage, um, people will break. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah they will. That's right, that's right. They will, and they always have. Uh, I, I think anybody that's read about the Civil War or any previous knows that this is yes. a, it's a horrendous thing. And, um, you know, it's it was... I guess I don't want to say that there wasn't anything terribly unusual about Vietnam. I don't know. I'm not really an expert, but it seems to me that the experience of Korean War veterans in World War One versus World War II, it was, you know, there's something about this experience that is damaging, and we should acknowledge that. You know, whether it's damaging in the sort of PTSD way, I don't know, but uh, certainly it's been around for a long time as the, you know, as basically the release of this film. Which I have to say, I wish I could come up with the name of it. I really do, because I imagine you would love to watch it, because it's truly astounding. I, I, well, I, I can I can find it. In fact, there was an, uh, 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 an editorial recently, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal, um, comparing um, uh, the aftermath of World War II, uh, the studies that were done on the American soldiers, famous sociological mm-hmm. studies, Stouffer, the American soldier. Yeah. There's nothing comparable. Um, this, 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 we don't, and that was a very balanced, uh, thoughtful book that recognized both damage and, and, and men coming home, back, mm-hmm. coming back, healthy, mm-hmm. moving on with their lives. We need something like that. Yeah. Something more, yeah. much more, much deeper, both for Vietnam and, and for Iraq, Afghanistan, and mm-hmm. that um, tells the true story of. of the men who are suffering, but, but also is, is able to move beyond this, this notion of, of a kind of pathetic victim uh, that, that recognizes that, uh, that even as one of the nurses I, I wrote about, even with PTSD, I came home strong. Mm, interesting. interesting. Well, um, we've taken up a lot of your time Gary, and I really appreciate it. I want, I want to close the interview by asking you what is really our traditional final questions on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? I'm working on a, a, on a book that uh, uh, I, I would be happy to read uh, if I could. <laughs> <laughs> if I could read it, I, I wouldn't be working on it. But uh, it's hard to believe that uh, one topic that has... Uh, hasn't received the attention, uh, worthy attention, is um, the story of conscientious objector medics who served hmm. in Vietnam. So uh, that's, that is indeed what I'm working on, uh, and uh, it's an emotional uh, book for me. Uh, uh, I gave a paper on this uh, it's two years ago at Texas Tech. It serves as the kind of introduction I've, I've got. One long chapter written. I've got others to go, and, and of course, this this depends uh, very heavily on on contacts. And um, so, if anyone out there uh, served as a CO medic in Vietnam, I, I want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and our story was—I don't want to make this a, a story of, of um, how to put it. Uh, we were all morally upright, and, and uh, uh, we were a complicated lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. based on my experience, and, and uh, I, I want to make sure that that's, 
not all of us, uh, not all of us uh, uh, refuse weapons. Yeah. Uh, understandably, that's part of the story. Well, I, I want to I want to say that I, I and I think I feel safe in saying that you're the perfect person to write this book. <laughs> I hope so. I hope, but I, I hope I'm not too too close to it. That's yeah. that's that's why yeah, sure. I want to. Um, you know, it can't be. It can't be. Um, oh, I want to tell these sentimental stories about right. Sure. Uh, CO heroes. Well, I want you to come back on when you're done with the book, okay? Promise? That. <laughs> okay, that would be great. I promise. Right, so let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to Gary Kulik about his terrific book, War Stories, False, False Atrocity Tales, Swift Boaters, and Winter Soldiers, What Really Happened in Vietnam. Thank you very much for being on the show, Gary. Thank you. And let me say to everyone who listens to the New Books Network, uh, we really appreciate you listening to the interviews. We like producing them, and um, we are uh, very glad that you get something out of them, and I hope to talk to you later. Bye-bye.